Galatians chapter 4. Let's get our Bibles out and open to Galatians 4. Now, lucky for you, we've already studied Galatians 4. And what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at uh, this chapter of Scripture and we're going to see what the Lord will teach us and show us in the totality of this chapter. We took it apart in pieces, if you remember, uh, and... Various ways we talked about on Mother's Day and we talked about adoption last week. And I want us to see uh, the the complete message that Paul is giving us here in Galatians chapter 4. So you can uh, just look with me in Galatians 4. Also, uh, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, you can turn to page 1339. Sorry, I didn't mention that being on page 1339 if you want to look up Galatians 4. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Then we'll study His Word for a few moments. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we recognize that it is perfect and inerrant. And it's an amazing gift that You've given to us, Lord. And so thank You for this Word that You have uh, imparted to us today. And Lord God, may You speak through me. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive that You might accomplish what only You can do. For Your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, yesterday I... uh, yeah, I, I, I think yesterday marked uh, 14, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's 14, maybe 15 consecutive years of attending high school graduations. And uh, now not all of those were because one of my kids were graduating, uh, praise the Lord, but two of them were. And uh, so last night as I was sitting there at graduation, uh, I know graduation uh, better than most people. There's not a lot, you know, probably only teachers. Uh, and uh, Brian eventually will have be uh, the experience I have in graduations. I know how they go and I know what to expect. And so all the ins and outs. And so I find different ways to entertain myself. And, of course, then always God puts somebody around me or next to me to entertain me as well. And so uh, last night was no exception as we were there watching Colton graduate. Uh, this young lady comes down and uh, says, you know, is, is this seat taken? I said, no, ma'am, you can sit right there. So she sits there and um, we're sitting there uh, chatting for a moment. I asked her a couple questions. She was telling me a little bit about herself. And so then something happened. We started watching the graduation. She tapped me on the shoulder. And uh, just as sure as I'm standing here, she said, so do you have a, a who's graduating, a granddaughter or grandson? <laughs> I said, what? Girl, look at this face. I know pastoring's hard, but it ain't that hard. Goodness. Granddaughter, grandson. But here's the thing about graduation. You know, 12 years of school, you know, uh, maybe 13, 14, depending on how successful you've been. Many years of school have been poured into this uh, moment in time. And here's the thing you got to know about graduation, that you might, uh, you might complete, I don't know how many courses it is and all the curriculum that it takes and everything that's got to be accomplished for a person to meet the state and federal requirements to be able to graduate. But here's the deal. If you get through all of that successfully and at the very end are missing one piece, you don't graduate. You can't get a partial graduation. It's either all or nothing. In order to graduate, you have to complete all of the requirements, every one of them, which if you think about it, it's a little bit strange because 
my goodness, you ought to get some credit for everything that you've poured into, right? I mean, what if you've, if you've made it through 11 years, you should get something, but you get nothing. And there's a lot of things in life that are that way, that if you, if you're missing one piece, if there's one thing that's slightly out of whack, the whole thing is completely ruined. It just doesn't work. I mean, cooking is that way. You know, you can, you can work and you can get all the ingredients of something together and you can have everything there that you need. But if you use too much of something or leave something out, then the whole thing is messed up. Or if you miss a certain step, I mean, one of my favorite cooking stories is the first time I, I was a brand new married. Lisa and I had just been married and it was the first time that she was going to cook for my friends. And so I had all my friends over and some of you have heard this story before where my friends come over and we're uh, going to have our first meal and they're, you know, just excited about, you know, Tony's married now and, you know, it's wife's going to cook for us. And so she makes these pasta shells, these big pasta shells where she stuffs them with meat and cheese and all sorts of things. And so she comes out there. We're all sitting around the table and she brings the the dish out there and we all scoop some out. And, you know, nothing really occurred to me that was strange at first. And then we all got ours. And uh, then everyone began to dig in. And uh, we noticed that we couldn't dig in because she forgot to boil the shells. So they were hard as a brick. So we all, and, and then she realized that we couldn't get, so everyone just cracked them open and then ate the middle. You see, now she had all the ingredients there. But she missed a step and the whole thing was gone, Right? Well, now, this is the illustration that Paul's giving us here in the book of Galatians about the gospel. That you cannot add anything to the gospel or subtract anything to the gospel or alter any ingredient of the gospel or you negate the whole thing. It's all for nothing. It's all destroyed. And so in, in this letter, Paul is, is t- telling these churches in Galatians, Galatia, that listen, these false teachers have infiltrated you and they're trying to change the gospel. They're trying to make you have to follow some rules and regulations that are not part of the gospel. And it's going to pollute you and it's going to negate everything. And that's why Paul is so adamant in his defense of the purity and simplicity of the gospel. And the gospel is still under attack today in the exact same ways that it was 2,000 years ago when this letter was penned. And so I want to give you three pictures from Galatians chapter 4 quickly. I just want us to see three different pictures he gives us in each section of this chapter. And he's showing us, he's teaching us about how grace has rescued us from each of these pictures. These pictures represent a trap that all of us can fall into if we're not careful. And so it's important for each of us to take inventory and note of each of these things and how they might apply to our own personal lives and our own personal experience. So let's look at them. First of all, the first picture we see is son or slave versus son. That's in the first seven verses. Here's what Paul says. He says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ from all at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of this world. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, this is what we talked about last week, this gift of adoption. He says in verse 6, And because you are now sons, God has sent forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, which is Aramaic for Daddy, verse 7, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, this first picture is teaching us that we can relate to God as a slave if we're not careful. But we're not slaves, we're sons in Jesus Christ. And what Paul is illustrating here is that this, through this, the, the, the ministry, the, the amazing gift of adoption, we are ushered into God's family and we should no longer relate to Him as uh, a slave master, as a slave would to a master, but as a son would to a loving father to whom we are the heir. Now I want you to, to, Uh, Let me give you a a picture of how you should apply this in your life or understand this. Suppose that uh, wherever you work, wherever that is, you you go to work tomorrow. And let's just suppose that you've been working there for quite some time. Let's say maybe five or six, seven, ten years you've been working there. And so you go into work as you always do. And you're doing your job as you always do it. And let's face it, it's probably not the greatest thing in the world. There's probably other things you'd rather be doing. But this is what you do. This is how you earn your living. This is what supports your family. And so this is what you do. And so you're there doing your job. And suddenly, as you're working... Uh, someone approaches you, maybe a, uh, an elderly gentleman approaches you, and he says, excuse me, can I have a minute of your time? And you say, well, well, sure, what is it? And he says, well, you don't know me, but I know you. In fact, I know everything there is to know about you. I've been watching you for quite some time. I have watched the way that you conduct yourself here at work. I've watched... Uh, you as an individual. I've watched you. In fact, I even knew you before you came here. And I know we've never met, and I know that's kind of creepy, but I just want you to know that it's okay. I actually am the owner of this entire organization. And I'm here today because I want you to be my son or be my daughter. I want to adopt you into my family. I want you to become my child, which would make you an heir of this whole entire company. Now, if that were to happen to you, how would it affect the way that you approached your work the rest of the day? How would it affect the way you got up and approached work the next day? You see, everything in that moment would change for you. Because no matter what was going on prior to this encounter, no matter how diligent you were, no matter how uh, much you loved your job or didn't like your job, no matter how much stress you were under or how much peace you had at work or whatever the case may be, everything would change. Because now you are coming to work every day to something that you are an heir of. That someone, for some reason, unbeknownst to you, for no reason that you know of, comes to you and says, you now will inherit all of this one day. You see, this is what Paul is trying to get across to the Galatians. He's, he's using this contrast 
to say to them, well, why would you revert back? Why would you allow yourself to be to be bewitched into believing all of this when don't you realize the value and the 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 unbelievable favor that you have in Christ and Christ alone? You see, before Christ, the Jews, they worked for God. That's what they did. They they had 600 plus rules that they had to follow. And it was this never ending litany of following rules. And if they kept the rules, things went well. And if they didn't keep the rules, things didn't go so well. And that was their relationship. And that's all they knew. And then Christ comes and frees them from this. And now they're, they have freedom in Christ and assurance of their position before God. And False teachers are coming in and trying to revert them back into this legalistic way of thinking. You see, Christ came and kept all the rules for them. All 613 rules, He kept them all. He never broke any of them. He did it perfectly. And then He's invited them to be adopted into His family that His perfect record would be accredited to them so that God would then relate to them as if they had kept all the rules. You see, that's where you are today. As a child of God, you've been adopted into His family. But more than that, you become an heir of all that Christ earned on your behalf. Not what you earned, but what He earned on your behalf. He's the one who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. We're the ones that receive credit for that life through the shed blood and forgiveness of sin. So you see the, 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 the contrast here. Slave versus son. A, a slave obeys because of the threat of punishment. But a son, a son obeys because of the bond of family. A slave is rewarded based on performance, but a son is rewarded based on relationship. There, there's an utter and complete difference in the way one would think between slave versus son. And so that's why in verse 7 he says, therefore you're no longer a slave but a son. They should know this. He's reminding them of something they know. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How horrible would it be for a son or a daughter who is unconditionally loved by their father to willingly choose to live as a slave. You see, this is why Paul is so concerned. Because it happens all the time. There are Christians right now, probably in this room, who live under the tyranny of a slave master in their, of their own uh, imagination. That they, they, they worship a God that they see cracking a whip and keeping a scorecard on everything that they do and not as a loving father would see a, a son or a daughter. And you see, that can be the only way that I could explain to you this morning. Why? There are some churches that are filled with grumpy people. That just simply doesn't make sense. It's just simply, it can't be. How how is that? Not that we're always happy all the time. But what is the defining mark, as we're going to see in the weeks to come when we get to the fruit of the Spirit, what is the defining mark of a Christian? Peace. Peace. And so if you know Christ, you can't be wound up in in angst and bitterness and and just drama all the time. It just doesn't work that way. See, we've been rescued from that trap. What's the second trap? 
The second trap we've been rescued from is rules versus relationship. Now, this is the next portion of Galatians 4, beginning in verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those by which by, which by nature are not God's. For but now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to these weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Paul says, I am afraid for you lest I labor in vain. He is afraid for them. They are going perilously in a direction of great danger. He's showing them that going back to trying to earn God's uh, rewards, God's affection, God's favor. It never worked before. It's not going to work now. And it's never going to work at any time in the future. That it's simply never going to work. It's not in God's economy. You see, people have this uh, innate love for a rules-based relationship. Because there are some benefits to that. You see, people who are good rule followers, they love it. Because it gives you a gauge on how you're doing. You always know how you're doing. You always have this good sort of, you know, you, you, you have a way to quantify how you're doing. But it doesn't work with the gospel. When we try to translate all of these worldly relationships, which we have many that are based on rules, many, and they have to be that way. Trust me, you and me both, our lives are riddled with relationships based on rules. They have to be that way. They, they're not ever going to be based on relationship. Your relationship with the police officer is based on rules. I can assure you. You ever you, you meet somebody that hates police officers? Then they have a problem following the law. That's why they hate them. You see, people who follow the law, they love them. Because they want everybody else to follow the law. Right? You see, a, pol- a police officer never pulls you over and says, Well, I was just wondering, were you thirsty? Would you like, would you like a Diet Coke? No. And when they pull you over, you know you've broken some rule. And you know that now there's a wedge in this relationship. And so you're going to do everything you can to smooth it out as fast as you possibly can. Yeah. And it's the same way these students have had had a relationship like that in in class. We have a relationship like that in our jobs. I mean, let's face it. Where you know you don't just you have a a, a rules based relationship with every financial institution in which you do business with. You write checks and you don't have money in your account. They don't just say, "Well, we're friends. Who cares?" <laughs> you don't send your mortgage in. They don't go. Oh, you know, we've been doing business for so many years. It's cool. Don't worry about it. You can just stay there, live there. No problem. No. The deal is you do what you're supposed to do. They're going to do what they're supposed to do. There's rules and everybody's following those rules. Things go fine. You don't follow the rules. We've got a problem. Now, how do I know that the gospel cannot, it literally cannot be Based on rules, as crazy as it seems, and if we had an hour, I could stand here for an hour and give you an hour's worth of ridiculous, crazy, nutso rules that are in Christianity today. But we don't. And you know many of them. But how do I know for sure that it absolutely cannot be based on rules? Let me give you the rules versus relationship quiz. Three simple questions. Three simple answers, okay? So you answer and see how you score. Because, you know, I'm telling you not to keep score, so let's keep score. Okay, question number one. Whose idea was it to give Adam and Eve the free will to choose? 
Now, you know the rule. Whenever you're asked a question in church, the answer is always just say God and you're good. Always. Sunday school, just say God did it. Jesus, God. Someone in the Trinity. Okay. And you're pretty much going to be safe. So whose idea was it to give Adam and Eve uh, free will? Well, it was God's idea, evidently. Sure it was. Question number two. Who put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden? You're catching on. See? Y'all just might pass this class. Okay, question number three. Whose idea was it to send Jesus to earth to die for the sins of men and women? Very good. Now, if those three questions are all truthfully answered God, which they are, then it negates the possibility that we could have a relationship with Him based on rules. Because what kind of a God would desire for to create a creation that follows rules, then give them the ability to freely choose otherwise, then you couldn't give us the ability to freely choose otherwise and not give us something to choose. So he gives us the ability to choose, then gives us something to choose from. And then when we choose that, he slaughters his son to reconcile the problem. Now, if he... If he just wanted us to follow rules, that means he murdered his son. Then he made a mistake. That he shouldn't have gave us free will. That he shouldn't have put the tree in the garden. That if he wanted to, he could have created robots. Right? Yes! It would have been easy. No tree, no choice, bingo. Everybody does whatever God says, no problem. So clearly that must not be what he wants. The second part of my hypothesis goes like this. Let's suppose, hypothetically, that a God who couldn't be rational if he did this, but let's suppose, hypothetically, that that God could or would create us with the freedom of choice, give us an option to choose. Then, after we've chosen the wrong thing, riddled up his creation with sin... If he desired for us to follow rules, if his agenda was to have a people who obeyed his rules, would he have to slaughter his son? That's the million dollar question. No. There's a million different things he could do. I just like sitting around thinking about those things. So I think to myself, well, let's suppose God just wanted us to follow the rules. Okay, no problem. What he would do is while he was creating everything, when he made clouds... Instead of making them light and fluffy, he'd make them steel and shiny. And every time you broke a rule, a cloud would go, boom, and flatten you. And you're dead. And so if giant anvil clouds start falling out of the sky, every time you break a rule, guess what's going to happen? Those of us who live will be obedient. And no one's going to break the rules. And so he simply solved that by just changing the clouds. You see, if, if five people that you knew all got smashed by clouds. Come on. You got to think out of the box, people. We're leaving rationale behind here. I'm trying to give you a way to, to, to make God about rules. This is how hard it is. You have to make up crazy ideas like this because it won't work. You see, clearly he wanted more than rule followers. He gave a freedom of choice because there's no intimacy if there's no choice. You see, if I'm the only man and Lisa's the only woman, then how's she ever going to know if I really love her? I mean, let's face it. I've got 
Monkeys, giraffes, elephants, Lisa. I think I'm going this way. I mean, that's my only choice. Relationship. You see, God wants people who freely choose Him. Freely choose Him. Intimacy has to have choice. It has to have choice. And so, so there's this great discovery in Scripture. The discovery that God wants to know you. That you reading your Bible or you, you come to church and you hear a sermon and suddenly this, this little switch goes off in your heart and you realize maybe for the first time God wants to know me. He wants to know me. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, but now after you have known God, Paul's talking to the Galatians, he says, or rather are known by God. You see, God wants to know you. The next time somebody comes up to you and says, well, why did Jesus come to earth? There's a lot of answers that you could give, and and a lot of them would be correct. But I would commend to you that you say, He came to earth so that we could know God. That's why He came. He came so that we could know Him. I want you to notice, how, how do you know that? Because that's what Jesus said the night before He was crucified. In John chapter 17, Jesus gets alone and he prays to the Father and he's praying for his followers, his disciples. And what does he say in verse 3? He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So did Jesus come to give us eternal life? Yes. But what is eternal life? That we would know God. So Jesus came from heaven to earth and lived a perfect life and died a horrible sin on our behalf that we might know God. That if He just wanted rule followers, He wouldn't have sent His Son to be slaughtered on a cross for rule followers. It's for relationship. It's the only way the gospel works. You see, when you read the Bible, it will reconcile these issues in your heart. And so it's not rules, but relationship. What's the third trap that we can fall into? We can fall into the trap of contract versus covenant. Now, in beginning in verse 21, Paul's going to use this uh, illustration of Abraham to contrast this. In verse 21, he says, Well, tell me this. You who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Verse 23. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And he of the free woman through promise. Now, here's what it's referring to. It's referring back to the Genesis account of when God comes to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you. That through your seed, I am going to bless all of humanity. And Abraham, by faith says, okay, God, I believe you. I trust you. And it was counted unto him as faith. But he goes home and he tells Sarah, honey, you're not going to believe this. I met God today and he's going to bless the whole world through our offspring. And Sarah's like, uh, well, here's the problem. We're really old. Like, if we're sitting at graduation, the girl's going to go, which great, 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 great grandchild are you here to see graduate? That'll probably be next year. For me. And so they don't have an offspring. They don't have a child. They don't have an heir. They got a problem and they're too old to have one. But God said, I'm going to do this. And God made a covenant with them. 
God said, I'm going to do all this. And then God sealed the covenant. But God didn't say anything about you got to do anything. He just said, I'm going to do this. Well, and so they wait and they wait and they wait. Nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. And then what happens? Well, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, you know what? Here's the thing. We, we need a child. See, God promised that he would bless the world through our offspring. But we don't have an offspring. So what we need to do is get an offspring. So then God can bless the world through our offspring. So I've got one of my maidservants here, Hagar. And if you will just have an offspring with Hagar, then everything will be fine. So then Abraham does that, and Ishmael's born, born of the flesh, born of a bondwoman. And then after that, what happens? Sarah gets pregnant and gives birth to Isaac, the free woman, born of the Spirit. Now, here's what's fascinating about that. You see, Sarah thought that God had made a contract with them. She thought that this arrangement with God, sorry, this arrangement with God, just take it up with him. This arrangement with God, you try to sleep in here, he's going to get you. I'm just saying. Just no clouds, God, okay? Okay. I was just kidding about that. Okay. I'm sorry. I need medicine. Okay. So they thought it was a contract. And so Sarah trying to fulfill their end of the contract so then God would fulfill His end. But here's what fascinates me about all this. Is that they... They did the wrong thing. They did what was wrong. And God still gave them Isaac. So it can't be based on performance because they failed the test. And they still got the blessing. You see, a covenant is a promise. And when God makes a covenant, it's a unilateral covenant. It's not a covenant based on, He doesn't say, Now, Abraham, if you do all this, I'm going to do that. That's not how it works. That's a contract. A contract is, okay, I agree to this and you agree to that. A covenant is God saying, I agree to this. So says the Lord, period. It's a promise that God makes. And once He makes a promise, that's the end of it. And so you see, and look at verse 28. Now we, brethren, Paul says, as Isaac was, are children of promise. He's saying Isaac was was a gift of the promise. You, as a child of God, are a gift of that promise. That through the seed of Abraham, you now are a child of promise. That every child of God is a child of promise. You see, God made a covenant. So when we, when I got married to Lisa... We made a, we had a marriage covenant. That's why in my vows, here's what I said. I said, I, Tony, take Lisa to be my wife, my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Nowhere in there do I say, if you do this, I'll do this. I'm simply declaring what I'm going to do. You see, I'm saying, I will do all these things. Now, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I'm still saying I'm going to do all these things. That's what God's saying when He makes a covenant. He's saying, I am going to bless the world through your offspring. And God, even though they do the wrong thing, God gives them a child of promise and blesses the world. There's no clauses. There's no qualifications. It doesn't say if this or that. So then in verse 31, Paul says, So then, brethren, we're not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. You see, we're children of the free. 
So if you're a Christian this morning, you're not a child of a contract. You're a child of a promise. You're not born again. You're not going to go to heaven because you've done something. You've fulfilled your end of the deal. That's not how it works. It's because the promise of God is that he would send his son to reconcile us to him. And that's the only reason. Therefore, we can call ourselves children. And if children, then heirs. You see, what happened? What's the, what's the whole Old Testament narrative about? From the moment God says that to Abraham, 40 generations later, a child is born in a manger. The seed of Abraham that will bless the world. Now I want to ask you a question. What kind of world was Jesus born into? Was Jesus born into a world where all the people were obeying God? Was Jesus born into a world where everyone was righteous and holy and doing the right thing? No. Quite the contrary. So you're saying that God sent forth His Son to a disobedient, rebellious people as a gift of the promise that He made all the way back in the beginning that had nothing to do with the fact that people had disappointed and, and disrupted and messed up everything along the way? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's what the gospel is. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and in John chapter 3, right after John 3.16, what does He say? That God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. Why? Because the world is disobedient. What does He go on to say? Because they rejected light when it came into the darkness. Because men loved the darkness. But it didn't stop God from accomplishing His plan. Why? Because He's a promise-keeping God. Because we're the children of the promise. Because it's not based on a contract. It's based on a covenant promise. By a God who never, ever, ever breaks His Word. So you see, the God that we've come here this morning to celebrate, maybe some of you have have gotten a fresh reminder of who He really is. Maybe some of you have had the, the switch in your heart turned on for the very first time. I don't know, but I want you to understand this God... That we serve the God of the Bible is so amazing and so extraordinary in the fact that he sees your life. He sees my life in its totality. He sees all of it. He sees all the mistakes that you've ever made. Every one of them. He sees all of the times that you have disappointed people who love you. He knows... Every time that you've fallen short, He knows every time you've been deceitful. He knows every promise you've broken. He knows all the commitments that you've made and not followed through on. He knows all the regrets that are in your heart right now this morning. He knows every person that you've ever hurt. He knows every word that has flown out of your mouth that you wish so desperately you could take back. And yet he sees the destructive pattern and nature of our lives. And what is his response? What does he do? He sends forth his son, Jesus. Why? That we might know him. 
He wants a relationship with you today. He's interested in relationship only. He's not interested in a contract. He's not interested in rule following. And he's not interested in being your bond servant or your your master. He's not interested in that. You see, he didn't send Jesus to make us slaves. He's God. He doesn't need slaves. He didn't send his son Jesus so that we'd follow a bunch of rules. What benefit would that be to God? How would that improve God's standing in any way? It simply wouldn't. And he certainly didn't execute a contract on the life of his son. It's preposterous. So the only conclusion we can make based on the information before us in Galatians chapter 4 is that he sent his son so that we could become his children and call him daddy. So that we could have a, a relationship with him that's based on love and intimacy. So that in sheer love and sheer love alone, his covenant promise would never be broken. Not because he expects something in return. Because he loves you. And he's promised to always, always love you. No matter where you go, no matter what you do. He says this morning, I love you. I love you. I've proven that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Don't perform for me. Just love me in return. It's a relationship. That's what this is all about. If you this morning, if you don't have a relationship with this God, can't you see his arms open? He's saying, come home. Come home, child. I know you. I've always known you, and yet I love you. If you have allowed the world to to beat you down and steal your joy. If you're saved, let me remind you of something this morning. You're an heir. When you get up tomorrow morning, most of us will be off work. I want you to just remember something. As you thank God for the freedom we have in this country and all the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, that's just a shadow. You're an heir of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are going to dine at His table in glory forever and ever and ever. Don't let the petty things of this life distract you from what really matters. It's a relationship. You can't add to the gospel or take away from it. It just is what it is. It's a beautiful picture of a God who always keeps his promise to a people who always fall short. But it's okay. Let's stand. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your blessing upon us this morning. Thank you for the gospel, Lord. 
Thank you for the heart of Paul, for this church he so dearly loves. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the blessing of my brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you for the great work that you are accomplishing in lives in this room. And Father, this morning, we thank you that you have come that we might know you. That eternal life is knowing God. The God who has preempted that by knowing us. And so, Lord, we just worship you in this moment. Father, you may be calling many people in this room to many different things. And whatever they are, Father God, I pray that we will be obedient to your voice. You are our daddy, our Abba Father. You love us in ways so majestic and magnificent we can't even express it. And so, Lord, as you lead us, help us to just obey you. Obey you. If you're calling us to yourself, if you're calling us to relationship, may we just run to you. Don't let anything separate us from you, Lord. You're calling us to to come and take a step closer to you, Father God. May we come. Maybe you're just reminding us this morning. Put your arms around the brokenhearted. Put your arms around the weary and the tired. Wrap your love around those who've been suffering and sick for so long and say, I love you. I love you. God loves you. I know this has been hard, but he loves you. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name.